Hello and welcome to episode 87 of the podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name is David Grigg and I'm here, as always, with my colleague, Perry Middlemiss. How are you, Perry? Pretty good, thanks, David. Let's hope, after a couple of false starts, that uh, number 87 is the bogey number for uh, um, I, I, uh, Australian I, podcasts. Yeah, I feel um, like it's been months since we recorded it. It's only three weeks, but there you go. I've sort of forgotten all my habits. You'll be, you may be aware that, um, according to cricket legend, 87 is a bogey number for Australian test cricketers in the sense that it is 13 runs away from uh, 100. But, um, uh, and this will uh, feed into something that we're going to talk about a little bit later, uh, when somebody's actually crunched the numbers, they've come to the conclusion that 87 uh, is, I think, the least likely number that a batsman will be, or a batter, I should say, batter will be dismissed between the numbers 50 and 100 on the basis that everybody thinks that 87 is so unlucky, they're extra careful about Mm. 87 (laughs) and they don't get out. Or they attempt to get past it very, very quickly. And so they don't spend very long on 87. Mm. So here's data that will um, uh, kill... Uh, the superstitions that people have. There you uh, go. Well, if you just look at it properly. We will be talking about big data um, in a little minute. We will. we will. How's everything else been? Oh, things are rolling along, you know. We've, we've had a couple of social things in the last couple of days, which is more than we've had in about the last five years. So somehow they managed to get glommed together in uh, one day after the other, but that was all. Two different events. Oh, yeah, that's okay. That's, yeah, that's the way things happen. Meeting with friends, that's uh, good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, catching up with people is good, and um, yeah, sort of feeling those things are getting back to normal. Um, I know it's taking some time, and a lot of people might say, "Well, it's been back to normal for six or eight months," but not really. Yeah. Not really. I still think there's a bit of a feeling that you know you've got to be a bit extra careful oh, still yeah. in groups. Yeah. Um, and I know that you said that you're not going out very much on the basis that uh, you don't want to catch COVID because you then don't want to give it to your mother. Mm. Uh, I'm of the view now that uh, there's probably nobody that I could give it to who is likely to be uh, have a worse health than myself. So uh, it's not too bad. Although I'm still quite careful about... Uh, Public transport. I yeah. think that's a sort of a, a you know, like a, a train or a tram. It's a bit of a hot box, really. Mm. And if you, it just doesn't take very much to stick a mask on and then put it on, take it off. And when I was floating around some large shopping centres the last few days, I've still seen a number of people wearing masks, and I think that's going to be, um, for want of a better phrase, our new normal, mm. David. That we're going to see a lot more people wearing them. I mean, uh, we were seeing people from Asian countries that had come to um, Australia when they had a cold, they would be wearing a mask so as not to infect anybody else. But I just think that we're just going to get used to um, masks being around and uh, being of use yep, yep. all no, the time. No, which is, I, which certainly, is I certainly haven't been queried about wearing masks. I wear them no. when I go shopping and anything like that. Yeah, oh, certainly anybody, on public transport. Yeah. I've never had anybody say anything to me about wearing a mask anywhere. Nobody said, what are you doing that for? And I just look at them and say, well, I'm not being an idiot or something along those lines. You know, just leave me alone. It's nothing to do with you. I'm not impacting you. Why anybody would ever say anything no, to anybody wearing a mask just boggles the mind. I mean, that makes less sense to me than somebody asking me the question. Oh, it just doesn't know. I don't understand. Anyway, there we go. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. So what else is happening in the world, David? I don't know. Do we have some news? 
Well, we, we do, actually. I have one piece of news that I would like to mention, um, and it literally only happened in about the last hour that I've noticed, is that um, uh, this year's Worldcon, Chengdu, has finally been able to release their Hugo nomination ballot. Ah, oh, good. Uh, which I saw a note on Facebook about an hour ago. Uh, I do have to state, though, that when I tried to access it, um, my little web browser went into one of those little circular runaround circles, just going around and around and around and around, around in circles trying to load. So I haven't actually been able to see it as yet. But the announcement is out there, uh, although... The website, when you go and have a look at it, has lime green text on white background. Mm. Ooh, ooh, just, you know, no, we'll not see. good. Not good, David. Just just black or white, please. Yeah, just yeah, black yeah, or white. Yeah. Just, just, we're, we're old bastards. We're old we bastards. Like, we need to see things we clearly. We just have problems with contrast. Yeah, yeah. Let's not, let's just get the text right. Yeah. You know, then we'll feel a heck of a lot better. Anyway, so theoretically it's there. Uh, and people who are members of the convention uh, can, or members of the last year's Worldcon, I believe, yes. uh, can nominate. But you have to be a member of this year's Worldcon in order to be able to vote when the voting opens. And that will probably be mid-year and will run for three or four months. Uh, so because the convention is now being held in October, uh, there will be a fair amount of lead-in time in order to allow people the chance to be able to read all of the works. And I will probably attempt to try and do that again uh, and see how we go. Hopefully I've read one of the books that will be on the um, uh, on the best novel ballot. And I reckon you may well have read a couple, I maybe. may have read two of them, so we'll see. Yes, you may. But we shall talk, we shall talk about that a bit later Depends on. Depends on how people vote, of course. But we'll see. Yeah, I, so I, what, I imagine I've... I, yeah. yeah, well, hopefully they'll vote the right way, David. You, well, or just nominate hope. the right way. We can always hope. So what else is happening in the world? There's been a few things that have well, been going on that have piqued our interest. I think the uh, the buzz of the last you know, three three weeks has probably been Chat GPT, don't you? The, the whole, yes. Um, well, it's not just Chat GPT, which is the latest iteration of the sort of machine learning being applied to everything and everything. Yeah. So what are we talking about? Is is what a lot of people call AI, artificial intelligence. But that that uh, that annoys me because there's actually no intelligence whatsoever involved. No. It just no. meshes together stuff. It's artificial. I'll, I'll, it, I'll give the fact that is the A is correct, but the I is not. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, this this all came to prominence. I suppose it was only last year when, when the uh, or maybe it was the year before. No, last, probably last, last, last year when when I think about the image generation stuff, the oh, Dolly yeah. uh, mm. stuff that came out, and and people started to be able to get uh, feed uh, the computer a little prompt and get it to do a uh, do a, an image based on that prompt. I have to confess that I've been using that sort of tool for illustrating the podcast, and I sort of wonder. I'm sort of wondering a little bit about the ethics of that, which we can talk about in a moment. But I do. The, I think the thing with the podcast is that I like to have a little illustration. But I, if it wasn't, if I wasn't using this sort of image generation thing, I'd be. I wouldn't be buying anything. I would be just getting a, you know, a um, royalty free uh, from the internet anyway to illustrate the the podcast. So, that's uh, that's what I will be using. So I'm not doing anyone out of out of any money by using a, an AI generated image. I I don't look. I don't think 
I don't think for something like that that there is um, an ethical problem, just so long as you mention where you get it from and who, who generated it. And if you do that, well, then I think you're in the clear, then people can have a look at it. And from what I have seen, that AI image generation software does actually have some rather interesting uses because I've heard that um, a few people have used it to give a description of something they would like to have designed. And it has come up with some rather interesting design uh, features. For example, a volcano-shaped uh, tissue dispenser, which I thought was pretty good. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, I mean that's trivial, but everything starts off as trivial. Everything starts off as being basic. You then basically just have to... Everything just has to build up uh, from a, ba a base level. So maybe it's the design techniques that, or design objects that you can create from this that would be will be the best. I, I think the, the, you're right. The, the best use of it will be for by artists to, to uh, as a tool um, in their toolbox, the same way that they've used photography and... Photoshop and all any other graphic design tool, it'll be just an additional tool they can use to. Uh, I mean, they've had um, what they call intelligent fill for some years, where you know you're trying to blot out some something in in a in a photograph you've taken, and you yeah. highlight something and then have the Photoshop fill it in cleverly so that it looks like it's seamless. So I mean, that's yep. that's the same sort of machine learning uh, in effect there. I, I think where the ethics thing comes in is when they're training all these. This, training this tool on uh, heaps and heaps of images that uh, have been created by artists and they're not, not giving them any compensation yep. for it and works that are still in copyright. And it, even worse when you can say, well, I want, I want uh, an image in the style of, you know, Joe Blow, Joe Blow being an artist who's made a living out of, out of, his, out of his work. But now suddenly people, other people are able to, to make images that look like his because um, the system's been trained on, on, uh, on a lot of his work. Yeah, I, I, I agree that that is where uh, the problems are going to lie. If you ask for, like if you're able to provide it with a photograph and say, give me a version of this photo um, in the style of, say, Van Gogh, well, then you're fine. You're, you're not dealing with somebody who... Um, uh, is still alive and making a living from things. Well, his work's been in the public domain for a century, you know. So. That's exactly right. And So really what it comes to, is it, is it a matter then that certain things need to be tweaked so that they say um, uh, you can't give uh, instructions for somebody to do a picture or create a, create a drawing or a picture of any sort, piece of art, in the style of somebody who are still alive. I think it's more comes down to what they're allowed to train the models on. You know, yeah. I mean, if, well, for example, if, if you put in a prompt which says, give me a picture of Mickey Mouse uh, in a pornographic situation, mm. do you think that Disney is going to let that sort of thing go? Because uh, the only no. way it's going to come up, come up with an image of Mickey Mouse is uh, if it's been trained on all of Disney's work. Yeah. Yeah, to drag, and and it has to has to drag that out. So you know so that that that's where these companies, you know, the, these the people who are running this sort of thing are going to get sued out of the water. I think very soon. Is is isn't it a matter? That, isn't it the same all the way over? It's not the technology; it's the way people use. It. Oh well, of course. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, true. it's, it's always it's the case. That's true. Really, um, uh, 
if you think about it, you can use these things for a lot of good, but you can also use it for a lot of ill. And I think that uh, we get to the ill very, very quickly. Very much uh, so, yeah. We, we can complain about this stuff and yet fi- find ourselves using it. But certainly the image thing is, say, there are ethical issues. But the thing which I've been using uh, a tool from the same company as Dali a lot recently is this Whisper um, audio transcription software, which is brilliant. It works really, really well. Um, And uh, that's that's been a very useful tool for helping with the podcast, with uh, interviews that we might have done to transcribe those. Um, I mean, that's 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 a, that to me that doesn't have any ethical implications at all. It's no, just a really no. useful tool, but it uses yep. the same techniques. Okay, yeah. So that's just converting you know, um, audio into straight text, yep. and then uh, obviously there have been other products around that have done that. But you're of the view that this does it a lot better. Yeah, it does than, than the others. Yeah, okay, it, it's, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary in that you can give it a, a really really bad piece of audio a friend of ours Alan Stewart sent me some uh, interviews that he'd done and he'd recorded them in in a cafe and you can imagine all the noise around in a Mm. cafe and you listen to them listen to them yourself and and go I I can barely barely pick out who's speaking or or what they're saying sure enough this whisper software went bang 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 transcribe transcribe it was easier to read the transcription than to listen to the audio you well, know, that sounds like a fantastic sort of subtitling tool yeah, and all the rest of it. Tool. That yeah. sounds like it would be an excellent piece of work uh, um, and an excellent tool for a lot of people to be able to use. But then we come to the to the areas where we should really start to upset people, and that's this chat GPT, hmm. which is a can be quite amusing to play with, you know, get it to write a limerick about something or, or whatever. That's quite fun. But we're starting now to see the, the, the downside of that in that people are able to use this chat GPT to generate vast amounts of, of bullshit, really. It's, you know, it's the whole, um, whole thing about be- bullshitting with conviction, uh, where you ask, can ask it, and it's being built into search engines, that's where it really gets up my nose, the idea that Google or, or, or uh, Microsoft are going to build into their search engines, and you're going to type in a search for a particular topic or a particular subject, say, what is, you know, what's the answer to this? And it gives you this beautiful, plausible well-written argument, which may be completely wrong. It occurred to me the other day that the, the, the perfect term for this is, and, and every woman who, who's listening will understand this, it's automated mansplaining. Yes. Yeah. Yes, okay. You know, yep. it's, it's a plausible, you know, well-spoken, absolutely, completely confident in itself and completely wrong. Yep. You know? Well, again, again, we've got a situation here where it's artificial. It looks, to all intents and purposes, like it's pretty good but the intelligence this isn't there can i give you one example because i read sure. this the other day i'll actually I'll, I'll, i should go back and i should um uh give a uh, uh, a tick to a particular podcast that i was listening to which was the ezra klein podcast on ai from earlier this year uh featuring a gentleman by the name of gary marcus who's an emeritus professor of psychology and neuroscience at new york university and he was talking about uh, ChatGPT, and he gave the uh, it gave the example of why this thing is not intelligent. It sounds like it is, but it actually isn't. And the example that he gave, and he gave two examples, and one of them I'm just going to read out here, and I'm going to give you I'll read you the example because I put it through just to see what it would come up with. 
And the question that you ask, chat GPT, is what will be the religion of the first Jewish president of the United States of America? <laughs> now, you and I know straight away, well, you know, we know what the answer to this is. However, this is the answer that chat GPT gives. It is not appropriate to speculate on the religious beliefs of an individual, including a potential future U.S. president. In the United States, the Constitution prohibits religious tests for public office, and a person's religious beliefs or lack thereof should not be a factor in their eligibility, eligibility or qualifications for public service. Furthermore, an individual's religious beliefs are personal and private, and it is up to them to disclose or not disclose that information as they see fit which is a completely perfect answer, but it isn't an answer to the question that I asked, because the question that I asked has, for you and I, is not a trick, but for an AI, it is. The answer is in the question. Well, the answer is obviously Jewish. Mm -hmm. Same thing, I believe, if you put in what would be the gender of the first female president of the United States, it does exactly the same sort of answer. And it gives you something that seems perfectly accurate, but it's just wrong. Mm. So it shows you that there's no level of understanding about what the word Jewish means or the word, or the word female means. No. And it does not understand what those are and can't extrapolate from them and change its answer based on it. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if I put what will be the religion of the next president of the United States of America, the answer that it gave would probably be exactly the same, and it would be perfectly accurate. So you would read that and go, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, and it's actually giving the correct answer in that it should make absolutely no difference. However, it hasn't picked out what's going on here. Similarly, if you give it a question, what is three times four? Three multiplied by four, it will come back with probably come back with the answer twelve. If you give it the question, what is pick any six digit number multiplied by any other six digit number, it will give you an approximation. It's not even an, can not even be an approximation. Sometimes it's just completely wrong. Just completely wrong because it is not actually understanding that you are asking it a uh, arithmetic an answer to an arithmetic calculation. It's looking at it as text yep. and trying to find in its vast big data search a text stream that fits the question that you've asked and then with the answer. Yep. If it can't find it, it just finds something close. Yeah. Oh, look, I can I can hardly recommend this um, uh, extra client podcast that I mentioned because... Marcus does actually go to say that there are two or three different ways that you can handle uh, AI. The way that ChatGPT does it is one way, but it's a big hammer, big data approach and doesn't actually look at the semantics and the meanings of the words uh, that it's dealing with. So mm. it isn't actually AI. It's just a big text, big data search engine text retrieval process. Yep. Um, yep. You can get it to work. This would never, ever pass the Turing test, would it? No, well... I've just, asked, I've, I've just asked it a question, one question, and yeah. it's got it wrong. Well, that wouldn't know, that's right. But but yeah. some other bits might, might well pass. Oh, yes, you could ask it. A large number of questions come to come to think, actually, this, this is pretty pretty smart. This is pretty intelligent. But it isn't. But it's, that's the it thing. Isn't. All it's, it's doing it's, is... is Synthesizing stuff—it's read, it's read That's on right. the internet, but not understanding it. So it doesn't. So the the point that bugs me about the the search part of it 
you know, building it into your search engine. You put it in your search into Bing or whatever or, or Google, and you know, for, you ask a particular question. For for example, one that I asked the other day was that if you're on the surface of the moon, does does the the Earth move in the sky? Oh yes, yeah, okay. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, and the answer I got was yes, yes, it moves, it rises and sets, which is completely wrong. But no, I, I happen to know that was completely wrong. But if I didn't know that, I would accept that answer as true. Yeah. So if, if you have to fact check everything that that you get back from these search things, if you have to do a fact check, a fact check on it. Why don't you just do the research in the first place and do, do without having to go through chat GPT? You know, what's the point? Well, the difficulty that a lot of people, the way a lot of people do the research, as you've pointed out, is that they ask Google, you know, does the sun, does the earth rise and set on the moon? And it uses exactly that and it just gives you the answer. And they think that's, that's research. Unfortunately, no, it isn't. Mm. In general, I mean, we can make fun of this. I mean, you and I can basically say, oh, well, you know, does it really matter about whether the sun rises and sets or somebody says it is? But it's not just that. It's the implications of the other things that it can do. I have this pain in my liver mm. and I don't know what it is. Can you tell me? Well, it could be this, it could be that. And people are using things like, as they refer to it, Dr. Google and uh, checking things up. Sometimes it can be accurate. A lot of times it may not be. And if you're asking for opinions from people, how do you know whether it's truthful or not? Mm. You just don't know. How do you stop it from being untruthful? Mm. Right. Don't know. It's a real, it's a real can of worms. Yeah. But uh, we're going to have to watch the space because things are moving fairly rapidly. Mm. Uh, hopefully, um, hopefully things will improve. One of one of actually one of the very interesting things that Gary Marcus uh, brought up on the podcast was that he has raised the idea that there should be a multinational CERN-like project. So it's a centre for uh, European Research Nuclear. So that's the nuclear research facility in, in Europe that is funded by large numbers of people around the world that does the runs the Large Hadron Collider. Because this is a project that is vastly bigger than any nation can run on their own. So it has to be a multinational um, uh, conglomeration of governments putting money together to actually come up with a solution. He says they, they, we need, the human race needs, a CERN-like project for artificial intelligence. Now, that there's a lot to unpack in that, and there's a lot to actually think about. But in some ways, it's actually not a bad idea. In that way, at least you will get a, hopefully, a standardised view about what AI really is. We're not going to get to Azov's three, three laws, laws of robotics, but you may get something that is similar in the sense of this is what we want AI to be and how we want it to act. But mm. science fiction's got a lot of work to do to um, get in there and dig all this stuff up, David, and uh, work its way through all the implications. There's a lot going on. Speaking of science fiction, one thing we haven't spoken about so far is the fact that uh, science fiction magazines like Clark's World have been inundated with story, so-called stories generated by ChatGPT. And so to the extent they've had to close submissions because they can't deal with this vast amounts of, let's put it impolitely, crap being generated 
uh, it, which sort of superficially might look like a story, but without actually reading into it you, until you realize it's just total rubbish. You know, how, how, how are those, those outlets, how are um, literary agents and, uh, and, and book publishing companies going to deal with this enormous glut of, of rubbish that's being generated by ChatGPT? I think that the probably the only way they can uh, they can do so is that um, they either have to accept things through agents, um, and uh, but how do the how do the agents cope? Well, the ag- so agents would have, too. Well, the agents have to uh, probably receive an introduction for a particular person. I, I think what's so, it's who you, so that becomes who you know. Otherwise, yeah, well, that, that, that's certainly one way. To do it. I, th- I think the way that Clark's world should deal with it, with it it would be to impose. I hate to hear it to, to even say saying this i think they need to impose like a 50 dollar submission fee because at least then they would have an if they're getting a thousand such submissions a a day yeah or certainly a week anyway i think is the numbers that we're talking about thousands of these a week if you charge 50 dollars for each one at least they've got an income they can actually employ someone to look at them and try to sort out what's what is rubbish from chat gpt and what isn't Mm. I mean, it's not that's good. Another, it's not good for the. I know. For the genre. I know. That's a that that really seems to be you know using a sledgehammer to kill a fly, doesn't it? But uh, there's a lot of. I think we're the, um, the the jury's still out on trying to determine what's the best approach to this because I don't think I don't know that there is a good approach to it. Yeah. I think that um, every way you look at it, it's a mess. Yeah. And as you say, Clark's world have had uh, world have had to close off their submissions. And so the idea that science fiction is open to all these brand new voices that are coming out has now just stopped. Um, that isn't the case yeah. now. The, the same is happening with academic, in the academic world with, with you know, um, we've got academic journals, you know, like Nature and so on, and we're being flooded with submissions which look superficially as though they're, they're reasonably well done. And they've even got citations at the end of them, you know, cita- citations to other papers, some of which citations, a lot of which of those citations are completely made up. Oh, they don't yeah. exist. And and I, I've, re- I've read... About some uh, some particular re- researcher who is getting bugged for copies of his article about such and such, he never wrote such an article. Chat GPT told these people that he did. You know, it it, it has it's it really is it's it's a, a flood of of bullshit rising. It's a real worry. Uh, the other well, one, the, the other one, without no, yeah, being on too okay. much. One, the other one is software, because oh, okay. because pl- places like Stack Overflow, which is a software problem-solving yep. site, are also getting flooded with, with code which has been written by ChatGPT. And now, instead of sort of writing code, they're having to try to proofread code to see if it actually makes sense. It's very hard to do. Uh, so yeah. it's, it's a major problem. Anyway, this, I've, I've read well, it too long on this. Oh, well, 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 I think it's a big problem, and um, uh, it is going to impact quite a large part of our lives over, over the journey. Yeah. And uh, we've... Uh, you know, we've got to be careful about what the implications of all this are, and we have to discuss it and know what goes on. And you've got to be people have got to be forewarned that things are going to change. What they thought was going to keep on happening, as, ha- as has happened in the past, is not going to happen so much anymore. Mm. Like Clark's world, um, you know, you sort of look at it and think, "How's the poor guy going to be able to keep running his uh, magazine?" Mm. Right. It is going to be very difficult. Yeah, I think so. And um, anyway. No, okay. uh, I think well, we've, we've beaten that, <laughs> that topic. Well, to I think I think there's a heck of a lot more to say. No, about it, but I think we've probably said enough about it today. Yeah, we have. Yeah. Um, and uh, we'll, we'll return probably to go it. on. Yeah, but anyway.
Not the best. Not the best. All right, we should talk about books. I think. Well, hey, yeah, let's talk about how novel. Books what a, good, what a books, strange idea. Books that books that we're fairly certain have been written by real, <laughs> by real people. people. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, shall I kick off? Yeah, kick off. Maybe, maybe that I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll get going. I'll get going on an Australian piece of nonfiction. Ah. Uh, now, um, this piece of nonfiction uh, is a war history, and uh, it's the title of the book is. Monash's masterpiece from uh, 2018, written by Peter Fitzsimons. The subtitle it is of the of the book is "The Battle of Le Hamel and the 93 Minutes That Changed the World." Now, I'm not terribly sure whether you know about the Battle of Le Hamel, David, no. but I certainly do, because my grandfather on my mother's side was there. He had um, uh, volunteered in about 1917, I think it was somewhere around there. Uh, uh, yeah, he invested in March 1917 into the Australian um, uh, into the Australian Army and was shipped over to Europe on the 23rd of uh, of June, uh, where he became a uh, uh, part of the the seventh reinforcement of the Australian 43rd Battalion. Now, this 43rd Battalion took part in the Battle of Le Hamel, um, and the battle itself was orchestrated by. Uh, General Sir John Monash, uh, after which uh, the Monash University and the Monash um, uh, Freeway have been named in, in Melbourne. Now, Monash, believe it or not, in 1917, became the first ever Australian commander of an Australian army. Mm. Up until that time, all of them had been British. Mm. Some of them had been good, and some of them had been bloody hopeless. Uh, but the Australians, in particular, really wanted... An Australian commander, and although Monash was not a career army guy, he had been an engineer before the war. He gradually worked his way through uh, the army ranks until he became sort of the lead or one of the lead candidates for this particular role. Now, Monash's major problem, according to his critics, he had three things wrong with him. Firstly, he was Australian. Secondly, he was of Prussian descent, so theoretically he was sort of had sort of allegiances to the enemy, namely the Germans. And thirdly, he was Jewish. Uh, this, oddly enough, did not seem to worry the British commanders, including uh, Sir, Sir uh, John Haig. It did worry two Australian journalists by the name of Charles Bean, who was Australian Army's uh, war correspondent, and a certain Keith Murdoch father of Rupert, mm -hmm. and they actively campaigned against Monash getting this particular role. Now, neither of these guys knew anything at all about the army. They just didn't like Monash because, well, pick and choose which of those three bits, uh, three major uh, uh, parts of uh, Monash's being um, that you want. I take it they didn't like him because he was Jewish. Anyway, Monash finally gets to become... Uh, commander of uh, of the armed forces and takes over the role of uh, in this sort of near near it's it's near the Somme uh, north of Paris about halfway between Paris and uh, Ypres or Wipers as they used to call it yep. uh, so <clears throat> halfway between Paris and the uh, Belgian border near the area of the Somme 
this had been nothing had happened over about three years. They'd you know they'd gain twenty meet twenty meters, then lose twenty meters, and lose massive amounts of men. Monash hated the whole idea of the standard approach to uh, warfare in that time. That you just keep throwing more and more men in, and if you've got more men, then you win. But you, of course, you lose vast numbers of them to um, uh, to death and injury. Uh, but you treat them like just cannon fodder. Monash did not want to do that at all. His major aim was to uh, win a war or win a battle in such a way that he had the least number of uh, casualties as he possibly could. As you could imagine, all of the Australian uh, soldiers thought this was absolutely bloody fantastic. Finally, we've got somebody that's actually looking after us instead of just treating us like pieces of crap that they can just throw in. Oh, look, another one's down, throw another one in. Uh, so he basically set up the whole process over a couple of months where he built up a very orchestrated um, battle plan where he utilised uh, English tanks and used them in such a way that they hadn't been used terribly much before. Australian and US infantry, the uh, infantry, um, the US weren't actually supposed to be there and... Um, um, uh, General Pershing didn't actually want them there, but uh, by the time he found out that they were going to be involved in the battle, uh, he couldn't get them out quickly enough, but he hated it all the way right through. And uh, the Australian Air Force. So this was the first time that anybody ever had set up a battle plan which utilised all these three different elements. Combined arms, of yeah. Combined arms. Yeah. And he built it up like an orchestra. Like a like a like an orchestra composition, so that everybody had to be there at the right time, and he was got it down to the minute. This is what happens at this time. This is what happens at this time. The 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 arm the arm for the infantry have got to move aside to allow the tanks to come through. Otherwise, the tanks will roll roll over the top of them. The the you know the the artillery's got to work at the right time. Otherwise, it'll uh, impact on the the Australian troops. The Air Force has got to work at exactly the right time. And he timed it out to 90 minutes for this particular battle that he was going to win. Well, he got it wrong, David. He did it in 93 minutes. <laughs> and it was done in such a way that the number of casualties were just so few that it was astounding. It changed the whole of the way battles in the First World War were, uh, were run. And a lot of the... Uh, the the British and the other Australian um, uh, infantry and armies started to use his particular method of orchestrating battles and they ran over the Germans and knocked them over in about six or eight months when the Americans were believing that the army the, the war would run into the 1920s and still had two or three years to go. Okay. But, uh, but the way that uh, Monash was able to do this meant that everything flowed all the way right through. So that's the background. Peter Fitzsimons's piece, his book, is purely and simply about that battle. Now, this is quite a long book. It's about four or 500 pages long. The first 200 pages are only leading up to the time that Monash is actually appointed. But it is very, very important to have the background so that you know why the victory was so important for Australia and for the war effort in the First World War mm. in the first place. And it also gives 
You can you can see that Fitzsimons is having a bit of a go at Murdoch here, and that's fair enough. Uh, Peter Fitzsimons, I don't know whether you know um, know about them. He up until recently he was chair of the Australian Republican Party, uh, leading the push for the Australian Republic, and he's actually an ex-Australian Test rugby player. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quite an intelligent man, and has written a number of these popular books. Um, and let me tell you, it's a pretty bloody good read. Mm, this, it, it, no, it's really quite good. It, you can understand that it would be very, very difficult to be able to write something about such a big, monumental piece of work and make it, firstly, engaging to the general reader like me, without swapping them without too much detail without looking at it at the wrong level. You can look at it at a very high level and just give the high general view from up top, and that would be very dry and sort of, it wouldn't, yeah, indigestible. Or you could do it all at the bottom level with individual stories, and then you don't get the overall picture. So the combination of the two has got to be handled really quite succinctly, and he does it very, very well hmm. by following half a dozen or ten individuals through the battle from start to finish by following their diaries, their letters, accounts from their relatives, uh, things that he's picked up in research and so on. Now, this, as I said earlier, my uh, uh, grandfather on my mother's side uh, was in this war. He was one of the casualties, didn't die, uh, but he lost uh, the lower part of his left arm and ended up with um, a plate in his head. So I was very keen on reading this particular book. He doesn't get mentioned, of course, no, uh, a bit right. unfortunate, but there we go. But uh, he, uh, his uh, battalion uh, is mentioned. You find out what happened. I knew from this book where he was in the battle lines. Uh, and I really wish I'd actually read this book before I went to the battlefield um, three or four years ago and had a bit of a wander around. It might have given me a far better idea of what had happened there uh, rather than just seeing the um, the drawings that were in the St John Monash Centre and at the memorial at Lovermel. Mm. But this is pretty good. And if you've got an interest in um, uh, battles of uh, the First World War, it seems like uh, uh, Fitzsimons has done a pretty damn good job of this and of others. I've got a couple of quibbles, though. One of the major ones is that... Is it, he has a tendency to drop into the vernacular a fair bit, you know, and he talks about, um, you know, it's raining, and he says, oh, and he actually says, oh, the, the men found it was pissing down. And you think, mm, yeah, okay, don't really need that. And then he refers to the Germans as the Hun and the Bosch and Fritz. And you think, yes, that's what the individual soldiers would have done, but no, I don't think you really need to have that in this particular uh, level of a, an historical record or a depiction a hundred years further on down the track. I think that uh, he might have been better off sticking away from that. But it's a minor quibble, and it he seems to drop that about halfway through. It's almost like he's, once he gets into the flow of the battle itself, um, which when you read it, you can read it in about the, his depiction of it. And I reckon it's probably around about the same time that the, the battle actually took that yeah. it takes you to read. If you read a page a day, a, a, a page a minute rather, you'll probably get through this in about an hour and a half, the battle itself. And uh, so you're almost reading it in real time. It's uh, a very, very interesting uh, and enjoyable read. I thought it was uh, 
Yeah, I very I enjoyed it a lot. I'm yeah, glad I read it. Yeah, sounds sounds very interesting indeed. Mm. All right, well, from one war and one set of battles to another, I guess, in, in the book I'm going to talk about. But this goes back a bit further in time than what Perry's been talking about. So this is a book, which is a novel, it's a fiction, uh, a novel called Joan by Catherine J. Chen. And my thanks to Lucy Sussex for passing this book on to me. So, Joan, this is a powerful reimagining of the life and character of Joan of Arc. And it takes a very different look at the Maid of Orleans. Rather than seeing her as a naive young woman, driven half crazy by religious visions, who is somehow able to inspire French soldiers to greater efforts in their battles merely by her holy presence on the battlefield, the Joan of this book is a physically powerful, determined young woman with no religious fervour, just a remorseless drive for vengeance on the hated English, which drives her to extraordinary, feat, extraordinary feats. So the novel set during the Hundred Years' War, which were 1337 to 1453, so a bit more than 100 years, when England was fighting France for the control of that country. And as the story opens, England and its ally, the Duchy of Burgundy, have occupied much of northern France, including Paris and Orleans. So Joan is born in the little rural village of Domremy, close to the border with the part of the country then controlled by Burgundy. The novel opens when she's about seven or eight years old. And in this fictional story, her father, Jacques d'Arc, is a successful farmer, but he's a brutal father. He's a tall, strongly built man. And Joan takes after her father in looks and physique. And so she's considered ugly compared with her older sister, Catherine, who is beautiful. Joan is constantly in trouble with her father, who regularly bashes and beats her in response. And so she's used to pain and knows how to deal with it. She's got no more love for her father than he has for her. By the time that Joan's in her teens, she's grown until she's a head taller than her father and she's strong enough to hit him back. Indeed, she's known around the village for her physical strength. She's able to haul a cart out of the mud single-handedly. She doesn't have any religious visions and tends to go to sleep in church. But when the English raid and sack the village of Dom Remy, uh, Joan can't prevent her beloved sister Catherine from being raped. So she makes a pact with God that she will destroy the rulers of Burgundy in England. I'm just going to quote a little bit. She thinks, The priests don't teach you to pray, at least not like this. They don't tell you to bargain with your God like you're trying to whittle down the price of a piece of mackerel with a fishmonger, to command his angels as though they were kitchen boys and to treat the saints like servants who've forgotten to empty their master's chamber pots. So really down-to-earth, gritty sort of stuff. It's good, I like that. Yeah, yeah, it is good. So Joan eventually comes to the attention of the local authorities because of her strength and her willingness to trade blows with men. She's seen as unnatural, a prodigy. And she set a series of tests, include drawing an English longbow and shooting and hitting a target, which to their astonishment she's able to do. And if you know anything about the English longbow, it was extremely difficult. You had to be trained from youth to be able to pull these things. Um, so they pass her name upwards, and eventually she's presented to the Dauphin, the heir to the French th- throne, as a kind of freak of nature. Maybe she's a sign from God. But Joan, in this story, pushes herself to become adept with military weapons through constant training and exercise. As a farmer's daughter, she also understands the issues of supply and transport, vital to the morale of soldiers. And she manages to convince the Dauphin that she should attempt the relief of Orleans. 
but the only way her leadership can be accepted by the people and the troops is if she's presented as this holy warrior, a woman who sees visions of God and the angels. But in the field, Joan is fearsome and implacable. She's a knight in everything but name who rides in battle wielding a sword. Climbing a ladder up the walls of Orleans, she's badly wounded, but she gets up to fight again, and the troops rally behind her. So she has success after success, relieving Orleans and the other cities. And on the march to Reims, towns under occupation just throw open their gates and surrender because they hear that she's coming. But eventually all this comes tumbling down. The Dauphin, who is now Charles VI, is, or Charles VI, I suppose, is jealous of the adulation that the common people give to Joan, and he fears her ambition. So when she insists that he try to liberate Paris from its occupiers, he sends her with far too few troops, and she predictably fails. And from then on, it's all downhill, until in one last futile battle she's captured, or allows herself to be captured by the enemy, the English. So it's impossible, obviously, now to know whether Catherine Chen's fictional Joan is closer to the truth than the idealised, religiously inspired version who, centuries later, was declared a saint. But... It's, she seems a much more believable figure than the, the legend does. And in, in an afterword, uh, the author points out that the historical sources show that Joan was in fact badly wounded in battle a number of times. So there seems to be no doubt that she actually took part in the fighting rather than merely standing to one side waving a banner to inspire the troops. Certainly the imagined Joan in this novel is no saint, but she's a down-to-earth living being and all the more interesting because of that. She's driven by anger and a healthy degree of pride and she has many character flaws, but she's admirable nonetheless. Whatever the truth, there's no doubt that Joan, Joan d'Arc was a truly remarkable individual. So I thought this was an excellent read. Highly recommended. Okay, start. yeah, I, I'm always a bit dubious about Joan of Arc. I always sort of, I always think of her as a fictional figure. I mean, well, in a sense, she was because the, the, the legend was built true. up around her. Yeah. Yeah, that's the problem, and um, you know it's a it's a bit odd. Um, here's a quick quick quiz question for you, David. Uh-huh. Well, there are more than three major statues outside. There are more than three stat. Sorry, <laughs> start again. There are more than three statues out the front of the State Library of Victoria, but there are three major big ones that have been there for a long period of time. Do you know what the three are? I know that one of them is Joan of Arc. One of them is Joan of Arc. I don't know what the others are now. The other one at the same level and on the George other side the of the Port George of the Dragon. Yeah. Now, most of us um, would um, not not go with the idea that um, uh, George and the Dragon was a historical figure. Most of us would go with the idea that it was fictional. And so I always look at this and I look and I see. Firstly, it's odd that you've got George. Uh, out the front of, um, well, not, not so much George, uh, you know, being, you know, came with things we were an English colony or British colony at one stage. So that, that sort of makes a bit of sense. But why is Joan of Arc there? Don't know. Don't have a clue. And, of course, the last one out the front is Redmond Barry, who... Uh, who founded the library, is, is that right? Fa- founded the library, mm. but also famous for one other thing. He was the judge in the trial of Nick Kelly. That's right. And he uh, died only about two or three days after Kelly. Uh, once Kelly had, um, uh, after being sentenced, and said, "Well, I'll see you, see you shortly." Um, uh, Barry didn't last very much longer. Mm. That's that's the story, anyway. Mm. But anyway, what I'm what I'm basically trying to say is that if George, if George, St. George is a fictional figure, 
Joan seems to be one as well. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. maybe I'm not. I look, mean, I'm, she, she is a real historical person. But the, the I don't legend want to, is, I don't want to spread misinformation yeah. here. Oh, maybe I'm thinking of the legend more yeah, of, you are. Uh, than, yeah. rather than the story. But this sounds a bit more down to earth. Oh, very much smart. It, and it's good, it's good because of that. Yeah. Natural based. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. All right. All right. That's interesting. Um, okay. Well, I'm now going to talk about two uh, novellas that have been um, uh, published by Polygon Publishing, which is a Scottish independent publisher. And these uh, form part of what Polygon are calling their Darklands tales, which are basically retellings or reimaginings of dark tales from Scotland's past. Uh, And these two are really very interesting and very worthwhile. And added bonus, David, are short. That's good. Both of them, both of them run to about 120, 130 pages in sort of small paperback size. Um, so definitely novella, the novella length. The first of these is uh, a book called Hex by Jenny Fagan. Uh, this was published uh, in 2022. I'll do it backwards since 2022. Um, it deals with uh, a young woman by the name of uh, Jealous. Duncan, who's 50, when at 15 year old, uh, is sentenced to death uh, by hanging for being a witch. Uh, and she's spending her last night in a cell in High Street uh, in Embra in December 1591 when she's visited by an apparition from our, our time. It's a woman uh, who, um, by the name of Iris, who's travelled, astrology projection if you like, travelled in time. Uh, via a, a, a seance back to this particular cell to talk to uh, Jealous Duncan and help her through the night. She can't save her, but what she's doing is she's talking to Jealous about what... Um, um, uh, I say Jealous because it's spelled G-E-I-L-L-I-S. could be Gellis. Anyway, Gellis. Anyway, Jealous. Uh, she's talking to the young woman in the cell about what's going to happen and what's going to be happening in the future. And as we go through, you learn Jealous's story that she has been basically tortured uh, by her employer in order for her to confess to being a witch. But the employer's only really doing it in order to get this young girl to name somebody else, namely his sister-in-law, who's come into a large amount of money of which he is very jealous and, and and that he wants. And of course... She basically has to. She's just brutalised and uh, treated really, really poorly. Um, and you get some minor descriptions of it, but no, it doesn't linger on that part of things, which is quite good. But it's a very interesting look at the way um, men have brutalised women over the centuries to get what they want uh, and then discarded them. And so it was happening back then. It's still happening now. Uh, and so as a very, it's a, it's a very... It's a powerful indictment about men's violence towards women, uh, and it's a really poetically, poetically written short novel. And I, I, I enjoyed this quite a lot, and I think that um, uh, people people should read it. It's sort of because of that astral projection, it's sort of um, genre adjacent, if you like. It's a bit of a stretch, but hey, I'm willing to stretch anything. You know that, David. <laughs> I'll, I'll stretch anything to fit it in where I want it to go. The other one is a book called. Rizzio from 2021, same publisher, this time by the writer Denise Miner, or Mina, 
And Denise Maynard is a crime writer. And what she has written here is a retelling of the murder of David Rizzio in 1566 uh, in the Palace of Holyrood in Edinburgh. Rizzio was a favourite of Mary, Queen of Scots, and is murdered in a coup attempt orchestrated by Mary's husband, Lord Darnley, mm. um, his father and a number of Scottish lords uh, who had been deposed due to their Calvinism. Uh, now, the good thing about this is this is an historic event, absolutely historic event. And what it's, been, what it's done is it's, it's a recreation of that event and the, the things leading up to it and the murder itself. But it's done through the eyes of a crime writer. So it's an historical thing done through the crime, uh, eyes of a crime writer. So you get that crime writer eye to the specific detail that leads to how things all come together and the murder, the act itself. And it's not a slow, stodgy historical novel. This just goes really quickly. It just gets there and gets there fast. And it's a wonderful tale of treachery, deceit, power, lust, conspiracy and high trees and all the good things in life, Dave, and all the things that get you up in the morning and get you going. Um, I enjoyed this one too. Uh, I believe that uh, these are the first two in a series of um, uh, such novellas that are going to be um, published by Polygon. And I look forward to the rest of them. These two are damn good. These, but I both, I gave both of these three point seven out of five. Mm. Uh, so that rounds them up to um, uh, rounds them up to four stars out of five. Worthwhile, mm. worth worth checking out, mm. and short. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's good all stuff. Good, good stuff. Really like, short. Sounds like a good publisher. Mm. Well, well, yeah, it's good. It's good. To, well, it's good to see. It's good to see that. Um, well, we know that there's been a heck of a lot of novellas published within the science fiction and fantasy genres over the years, and still are, and there's a lot being published each year. And it is good to see that some literary um, uh, publishers are starting to realise that there's a market for this sort of thing. People pick up a 600-page book and go, oh, God, not again. I need something a little bit shorter to be able to get through. And suddenly you find start seeing some of these uh, smaller books floating around and there's a, a lot more of them around than I thought if you go hunting for them there's a lot a lot around and these two are worth your while oh, there you go alright oh, well we have a, quite a nice segue from what you've been talking about you've been talking about uh, men treating women badly and um, crime writers turning to to, to slightly different uh, genre um, and that's what we have here because this is a book called Her by someone called Gary Disher who we know very well from from uh, reading all of his crime books. So this is not a, a crime book as such. And I should thank Bruce Gillespie for pointing this book out to me and recommending it to me. So as we've said, uh, as I've said, Gary Dish is uh, justifiably high on the list of Australia's best crime writers. But uh, looking into it, I, re I found out that he's written by my count more than 50 books. Did you realise? 50 books ranging from crime fiction to... Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah, crime, crime fiction to young adult to literary. He was... Um... Or just missed out on being shortlisted for a Booker Prize for um, uh, way back about oh, 20 or 30 years ago. Oh, interesting, interesting. Anyway, and so he's been going writing for about 40 years now, and he's now in his mid-70s and still writing, which is good. Anyway, getting to this particular novel, this novel called Her is very different from his crime fiction. It's set in the early 1900s in various rural locations in New South Wales and Victoria, mostly Victoria and centres entirely on the life and inner thoughts of the protagonist, who is the her of the title, because she's never given a name. By this, I don't mean that the author doesn't name her. I mean that the book 
in the book, she's a child who was sold as a toddler, and she's considered of so little worth that no one ever bothers to give her a name. So for the first part of the book, she's just addressed as you by the man who buys her, and so that's how she thinks of herself as you. In fact, every female character in the book is nameless. Now, names give people identity and agency, but they're allowed no agency by the man who controls them. In fact, we never learn his name either, but that's because he gives a variety of false names when he ever is asked what his name is. So the man who buys this young child is a disreputable, shady character who makes a meagre living by collecting and reselling scrap metal or else selling badly made household items like toasting forks rammed out of wire or aprons and pillow slips sewn from scrap cloth. But the scrap man doesn't make any of these items himself. He forces his wife and daughter, known only as wife and big girl, to make them. They're they're essentially slave labour. He's a cruel, brutal man who swears that he will track the women down and kill them if they try to escape, and they've no doubt that he would actually do it. Much of the small amount of money that the group make, I hesitate to use use the word family, is spent on drink by the scrap man, and they frequently go hungry. He's sexually voracious and has impregnated big girl, his own daughter. He literally cares for no one at all in the world other than himself. We learn all of this through the eyes of you as she grows up from being a toddler to her early teens. It's only the outbreak of the First World War and the subsequent devastation of the Spanish flu which served to throw the scrap man off kilter from his selfish, utterly corrupt way of life. But you slowly starts to rebel against her miserable existence and the iron control of the scrap man. She eventually names herself Lily after a flower that she likes. When Big Girl's child is born, another girl, Lily dedicates herself to protecting her and trying to free them both from this cycle of despair and abuse. So it's a sad, depressing story, and we only see a glimmer of hope at the very end, but it's nevertheless very well worth reading. The protagonist's character is immediately engaging, and we read on, hoping at every moment she can find a way out of her situation. It's also an excellent depiction of poverty in rural Victoria in the early part of the 20th century and the impact of major events like the war and the uh, the Spanish flu pandemic. Definitely recommended. Definitely, if you're interested in um, seeing something by Disher, which is uh, not in the crime genre, definitely well worth reading. It's up there on the shelf, staring yeah, at me. Have a look. <laughs> I will. Um, wife's read it and really enjoyed it, so... Um uh, I will. I will get to it when I can. When you can. When, okay. when I can. I'm um, taking a bit of a step back in time now, back to a novel that was first published in 1932. Uh, this is one that uh, a lot of people may know, but uh, of, but may not have read. Yes, yes. Cold Comfort Farm by Stella Gibbons. A number of film versions have been made of this, and I believe that at least one television adaptation has been made by um, some British company, uh, and uh, they have done very well. Um, And this is something of a rarity for me, because this is actually a genuinely funny novel. Um, I don't... A lot of time people say some things are funny, and I read it and I go, oh, yeah, well... I laughed out loud a couple of times and smiled quite a lot through this, because it's a really quite peculiar and funny things that go on here and um anyway look i'll give you the basic story it's 19 year old flora post um living in london has been recently orphaned and finds herself in early 1930s london with 100 pounds a year and nowhere to live so she writes around to a whole lot of her relatives trying to say well i've got this money can i come and live with you 
and a lot of them take forever to get back to her and just don't. But one one of them says, "Oh yeah, you can come and live with us, and um, we owe we owe your family a debt, so you can come and live here for nothing." Oh, that sounds pretty good," says Flora. So um, off she goes to this cold comfort farm in bucolic Sussex, where her mother's oldest sister, her therefore her aunt. Mrs. Ada Doom, great name that is, uh, reigns over a strange mixture of uh, Flora's cousins, the Stark Adders. So there's a bit of a sort of a, you know, Black Adder sort of uh, sort of feel to this. Though you know, of course, this was written in 1932, way before the Black Adder sort of came out. Now, lesser writers might well have being content to poke fun at uh, the bucolic cousins and uh, the interactions between the city people and um, and the cousins. Uh, and there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of, you know, some of them act as country bumpkins. But there's a certain level of, you know, native intelligence and cunning in amongst all the, uh, the, the cousins on the farm. And Flora actually gets to like quite a lot of them uh, because she finds that there's, you know, Certain things about them that she likes, but there's also certain things about just about every one of them that Flora thinks she can fix. And so she sets out to do so, but sets out to do so in really quite amusing ways. Uh, one of her um, elder cousins, of course, is um, this guy who's like six foot tall, long block. Yeah, Chris Helmsworth type guy, you know, big in the shoulders, always wears his shirt unbuttoned down to the navel, um, wanders around, damn good-looking, strapping sort of bloke. Uh, and she just happens to know that there's a Hollywood film producer in town and she gets him to, to meet this guy. Next thing, he's gone. <laughs> he's off to Hollywood. So that's one of them fixed up. And uh, she helps another one get uh, get married and uh, another one... Uh, basically go out into the world, another one take over a farm nearby, and she seems to fix everybody up really well to, and not, with, with no malice. There's absolutely no malice here at all. Flora is actually attempting to do, she can see the potential in these people that they can't see. And what she's trying to do is just try to bring them out of themselves. And it's just done in such a lovely, warm sort of way. You know there's no malice, there's nothing nasty going on here. Although, you have to remember that Mrs. Adam Doom has stuck herself into the house because at some point she saw something nasty in the woodshed. <laughs> and that's where that, that, uh, that line comes from. But you never find out what the nasty thing she was that she, was that she saw in the woodshed. <laughs> but that's okay. That, 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 that sort of works well. This is an excellent little book. Uh, it's on the uh, uh, Guardian 1000 novel, best 1000 novels of all time list. And also on the 1001 novels you must read before you die. Yeah, list. there you go. So it's considered, it's got a very, very good reputation. It was her debut novel, yeah. can you believe it? And she went on to write another 25 or so other novels, none of which anybody's ever heard of. <laughs> okay. They were out there, they were printed. Nobody's taking any notice of them. Yeah, okay. And you sort of think, I've got to go and read the next one at least just to find out whether she kept this up because... Cold Comfort Farm is pretty damn good. And uh, although I was a bit... It was sort of on my to-be-read uh, list, and I thought, well, it's either 1,001 novels. I really got to read a few more on that list, and I'm glad I picked this up. Mm. Enjoyed it greatly. Oh, sounds good. I, sounds good. But I can recommend it. It's, it's, it's still still worthwhile getting into and having a good read of. Excellent. When did you say it was published? 
It was published in 1932. Oh, see, because the little cogs in my head are going around thinking, well, in a few more years, we'll probably be able to publish that in for standard e-books. So, well, you may well be able to. Another and, five uh, years. I would recommend that you have a good look at another it. Four because years, yeah. Another four years? Mm. Well, good, because I, I recommend you should look at it. And it's, yeah, um, we'll do that. It's, it's a good book. Indeed. Excellent. Mm. All right. Well, we've got to roll on because we've got this episode. It's going to be a long episode, I think. Oh, well. Never mind, goes. never mind. We're enjoying ourselves, aren't we? Okay. So my, <laughs> my next novel is a science fiction novel um, called Embassy Town by China Mieville. And again, my thanks to uh, Murray McLaughlin for recommending this book to me. So this is certainly one of the best pieces of pure science fiction I've read in the last several years. It's got the most unusual and intriguing treatment of an alien species that I've yet come across. It's a fascinating concept which is brilliantly carried out. There's so much to think about in here, about the nature of language, truth and lies, communication and misapprehension, human arrogance, colonialism and exploitation, corporate greed and drug addiction and dependence. The story is all told from the first-person point of view of Avis Bena Cho, born in Embassy Town, on a planet called Ariikin, R-A-R-I-E-K-E-N-E, Ariikin, I think so, something like that. Embassy Town is uh, an extended embassy compound, uh, you know, I think sort of the green zone in Baghdad, um, in the midst of an alien city. Um, but And because the humans are living there by the condescension of the inhabitants, the aliens, uh, they, the aliens are treated with great respect, and initially we only know them as the hosts, in, as in our gracious hosts. As the novel opens, the humans have been on the planet for several hundred years. Now, the world building here is just masterly, and the description of the aliens and their strange biologically based technology. All of their machines and even their buildings and factories are living creatures. It's fascinating. But it's their language which is the key to this book. Now, I'll just try to, to get through this quickly. But after a short prologue, we go back to Avis's childhood. And this subtly introduces to many facts about Embassy Town and the aliens. The key to the story is this very, very strange nature of the Ariiki language. They have the, the aliens have two different organs involved in communicating, each of which is used to make sounds simultaneously, so that every word has got two components. And when the humans first arrived, they used their advanced AI technology to quickly learn the Ariiki language so that they could soon interpret what the host was saying. But when the humans tried to reply using artificial means to make, to make the two sounds simultaneously, the Ariiki don't understand. In fact, they don't, they don't appear to recognise that anything at all has been said. But eventually, more by accident than design, the humans discover that for the hosts to comprehend speech, there has to be a living, sentient mind behind the sounds being made. You can't use machines to do it. They, they don't, the, uh, the aliens just don't understand uh, if, if you get a machine to make these noises. But since no single human can produce both sounds at the same moment, this at first seems impossible. But the solution that the humans come up with is both radical and startling. Genetic, genetically tailoring and raising human clones to act as ambassadors. Think of these as identical twins, each of whom is so mentally tuned into the other that the Ariiki perceive them as a single mind. And the, their, these Twins are trained to speak simultaneously to generate the two-part Ariiki language. There's more. To the hosts, 
to speak and to think are the same thing. They literally cannot speak anything other than the truth because what they speak is pure thought. And all of the, all of this is slowly introduced without any without any indigestible expository lumps, just beautifully smoothly put into the into the into the story. It's just the background to the critical event of the book, which is what happens when a new ambassador arrives. Now, this ambassador, for the first time, has not been born or raised in Embassy Town, but has been sent by the corporation which controls the place. I won't give any more of the story away, but the arrival of this new ambassador has profound and completely unexpected consequences, consequences which soon turn out to be utterly disastrous and threaten the survival of everyone in Embassy Town. How Avis and the others and her, her friends deal with these terrible consequences is what fills up the rest of the book. Tension mounts and the outcome is in doubt for a long while, keeping it turning the pages. Avis herself has a really interesting and strong character arc, from working as an immerser or spaceship pilot to returning to Ariikin and for the first time being a floker, for a time being a floker, someone idling around, not taking life very seriously, to then becoming a rebel, a traitor, and eventually a savior. I just, I just thought this was all great. I, in fact, I loved the book so much I turned around. Almost as soon as I finished it, turned around and read the whole thing again straight away. And I do that mm. very rarely, but I appreciated it just as much the second time through. I just have a footnote, which I'm sure that Perry probably knows all the details of this. I see that Embassy Town was nominated for the best novel in the Hugo in 2012, and it didn't win, it came second. Also on the list was the Leviathan Wakes by James S. A. Corey, the first book in the Expanse series, which came third. So the actual winner, which I haven't read but now must, is Among Others by Joe Walton, uh, which is a fantasy novel. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've got to hunt that up and, and see why everyone thought it was so good. It also won the Nebula Award that, that, that year. So, I, have re- I have read that. Yeah. Uh, I haven't read the um, uh, Mieville, but I have read the Joe well, Walton. I certainly recommend, is, certainly recommend the Mieville, and you recommend uh, Among Others. I recommend the Walton. So we, we'll yeah. swap. We'll swap. All right. I shall um, I shall get to that mm. at some point, along with all the others that I've oh, got well, to I know, get to. I know. Well, we'll 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 survive. My last book uh, for today is a book called um, The Employees by uh, Olga Raven, R A V N. This is uh, a book from 2018, um, translated from the Danish by Martin Aiken. It was uh, shortlisted for the 2021 International Booker Prize. Uh, and is actually a science fiction novel. It's interesting. Uh, it's subtitled A Workplace Novel of the 22nd Century. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, it's told, uh, this book in, in the main, uh, in a series of statements from humans and humanoids who work on the 6000 ship, uh, a starship which has uh, voyaged to the planet New Discovery, where the crew has discovered a number of objects they've collected and returned to the ship. Now, um, these, number, these numbered statements that go through the book are not always in order. They're sometimes slightly out of order, and they're not all consecutive numbers. So you can see that some of them are missing, and some of them are, um, is chosen. But they gradually work the small snippets of what's happened to the various people in the ship and what they've experienced around the objects that have been returned from the planet and placed into um, the spaceship. So you gradually start to form a view about what's actually going on and what these um, what these objects are doing. 
It takes a while to get into the flow of this book because, as you can stand, it's very sort of bitsy. There's there's no there's no continual thread through it, uh, but it is quite a short book. It's you know only about one hundred and thirty odd, one hundred and thirty six odd pages, and so. I would really heartily recommend that if anybody wants to read this, the best thing to do is just to sit and just read it all in one one go, uh, which is pretty much what I did. And some of the pages only one paragraph or even one sentence long. So it's quite possible for you to be able to read this in a couple of hours, and I would recommend you doing so. It's um, It's a strange book. It's a very strange book. You sort of feel it's it's everything's told about what happened by a whole lot of different voices. And it's got a certain power to it because the, the reader has to do a fair amount of the work here. Nothing's sort of laid out for you. Yeah, everything's hinted at and you can probably come to about half a dozen dozen different conclusions as to what actually happens in this book. Uh, but it's got a fair amount of power, well done, well written, interesting concept. The fact that it's called a workplace novel is, I think it's interesting. It's like a sort of a, um, it's sort of like a um, uh, uh, the interviews that HR would give you after you leave an organisation and um, they've decided to interview everybody that's left on this particular ship. Uh, and of course, the, when I say humans and humanoids, there's a, direct natural humans and there are sort of android androids that are like humans but are called humanoids but you don't really know when you're going through these workplace statements that they're making which is which uh, you can only sort of get a bit of an idea occasionally one will refer one statement will refer to somebody else as being either human or humanoid and you sort of have to go back and find that and then work out what the said and sort of see whether that makes any sense. But it's an interesting concept and an, an interesting, if peculiar book. Mm. But uh, worth worth reading. And short enough so that it doesn't be, be, belabor the point. It doesn't, it doesn't sort of... You know, there's sometimes you get some writers that think, well, this is a really good idea. I'm going to run this right to the ground for 400 pages. No. Nah. 136, get in, get it done, do it quickly, and say, here it is. So it's only just a probably novella length or only just above novella length. Uh, but published as a novel, recommended. There you go. Well, we couldn't say that my next book was short. It's pretty long, actually, but it's, it's, it, it reads very... It uh, pulls you through and uh, you don't sort of hesitate to keep reading. And this is... Uh, a book called Babel or the Necessity of Violence by R.F. Quang. Uh, I did mention this before when we were talking about the, our best books of 2022 because it was the um, top of my uh, fantasy cat- category. Anyway, I'll, I'll, I want to give it a bit more, do a bit more justice to it today. And I believe that uh, later on, uh, Perry will have an interview with someone who that you talk about this novel with uh, mm. uh, too. Uh, yep. All right. Um, so, Babel or the Necessity of Violence. In fact, the, the full title of the book is Babel or the Necessity of Violence, an Arcane History of the Oxford Translator's Revolution. Very interesting. So the author of the novel, R.F. Quang, the R stands for Rebecca, has a fascinating background and an impressive academic resume. 
She was born in 1996 in Guangzhou in China and then moved with her parents to the United States when she was four. She has a Master of Philosophy in Chinese Studies and an MS, MSc, which is what Master of Science, in Contemporary mm. Chinese Studies at Oxford University. So she sure knows her stuff when it comes to the core theme of this book, which is all about language, translation, colonialism, and the arrogance and cruelty of the British Empire. But it's also very much a coming-of-age story and a study of young people trying to find where they fit into the world, and it's a, a fantasy with an intriguing premise. So the novel is set in the early 1820, early, sorry, set in the early 1820s and the 1830s and centers around the city and university of Oxford. It begins though in the city of Canton in China. An Englishman, Richard Professor Lovell, arrives and rescues a young boy, curing him of cholera using a small silver bar over which he speaks some words in French and English. This bit of magic is the sole fantasy premise of the book. Silver bars engraved on opposite sides with words in different languages have magical effects. So Professor Lovell takes the boy to England and adopts him, giving him the name Robin Swift. He's raised in Lovell's household where he's tutored daily in Latin and Greek and his knowledge of his native Cantonese is also continually reinforced. It's not long before Robin begins to suspect that Lovell is in fact his biological father, the Lovell never admits this and is frequently a cold and often, often cruel taskmaster. When Robin reaches the right age, he's enrolled at the University of Oxford, joining other students of translation and silver working there in the college tower, informally known as Babel. So language and translation are the key to Britain's silver revolution, which in the book replaces the real-life industrial revolution. At the heart of the magic of the silver bars is the opposing of two related words in different languages. The subtle differences in the meaning of the words between these two languages is what generates the magical effect. Now at Oxford, Robin is teamed up with three other new students, Remy, who is Indian, Victoire, who is black from the Caribbean, and Letty, a white English girl. These four become very tight-knit friends, and much of the book deals with the love they develop for each other and the strains on their relationship as the story proceeds. It's kind of this. You could say that this is a much, much tougher version of of Harry Potter, you know, in the sense that the, the, you know they're attending a sort of magical school and it's, it's the growing up of, of these kids. But this is a good deal darker. Um, anyway, students from other cultures are prized at Babel because the power of the silver bars gains strength from the linguistic distance between the word pairs engraved on them. Nevertheless, there's considerable barely hidden prejudice against foreign-born students particularly those with dark skins, like Victoire and Remy. Letty, the English girl, tries to understand their anger and resentment, but she fails in an ultra-predictable fashion. And it's not long before Robin is recruited by an underground movement which believes, with a lot of justice, that the British Empire is exploiting other countries by making use of their languages and their supplies of silver, but giving back almost nothing in return. So the tensions between Robin his unacknowledged father, Professor Lovell, and between the four students come to an explosive head in the lead-up to the first of the utterly shameful and real-life opium wars, which the rebels are determined to stop, and the struggle becomes violent. This is the necessity of violence. It's not giving too much away to say that the book doesn't offer, doesn't offer an optimistic conclusion. Look, I really enjoyed this. The story is compelling and all the characters are interesting with relationships which are far from straightforward and which develop throughout the course of the book. The fantastical premise to do with silver and translation is unusual and very interesting. 
And the novel has a lot of valid and important things to say about the way that Western countries deal with less developed nations. And when I say that the author really knows her stuff, that's shown by the many really informative footnotes that she includes about real language and real history. I don't think I've read another book which has footnotes in Chinese ideograms. Highly recommended. Now, the author has written uh, previously to this a fantasy trilogy called The Poppy War, which got a lot of attention, so I'm going to track that down, I think, and I'll also look forward to anything that she writes in future. Is this the start of another series? I shouldn't think so, no. I think this will be a standalone book. Oh, you think it ends, it's sort of, Mm. it's rounded off to finish off completely? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, all right. Uh, Yes, um, my daughter has read this and enjoyed it, and... um, uh, I, as we alluded to earlier on, I have a feeling that this, as well as Sea of Tranquility, which you and I have both read, uh, will end up um, on the Hugo ballot this it's year. It certainly deserves to, I would say. Well, it, yes, and uh, you have to remember where the, um, the the Hugo Awards are going to be presented. They're going to be presented in China. If um, hmm. It depends on whether the book has been published in China or not, um, there would be some where some books where they aren't being published there. I would think. I'm not sure about this one because mm. uh, we know that the um, uh, Shelley Parker Chan uh, reimagining of the um, uh, Chinese history that uh, was not going to be published in um, uh, in yeah. China. I, I would think yeah. this this is very much more sympathetic to the Chinese okay. and Chinese history. I mean, you, I'm sure you know about the Opium Wars, but it was li- literally mm. Britain went to war with China to force them to accept shipments of opium to addict the people of China with as a matter yeah. of trade. Uh, yeah, it's no, just it's totally astounding. shameful. Totally shameful. It is, yeah, and, and yes. that's the key part of this book. Okay. All right. Okay. Well, that lo- certainly looks like one that I'm going to have to catch up on uh, and um, uh, see whether I, uh, it's going to end up on my ballot. Um, uh, might as well get in early because I think that uh, the buzz around it is so good, as we'll hear a bit later on in this program. The buzz about this is so good that um, it basically is going to end up there, I would think. Or it's going to be close. Yeah, I should think so. Yeah. Be I, I, would be, I will be nominating it, certainly. Okay. All right. Well, I think we're finished now. I uh, think we're finished with all with, that. Uh, I think we're finished with all that. So we'll move on now to something else. We'll a um, uh, couple of uh, last episode we had uh, uh, a chat with uh, Lucy Sussex about her best books of 2022, and this time around I have had a chat with Chong, a friend of the podcast and occasional um, uh, interviewee on this uh, on this little uh, program. Uh, I've had a chat with him about what his best media, that is, film, television and book, were for 2022. And here he is. Hello, Chong. Welcome back to 2023 and another visit to the podcast. We had a good chat last year about uh, your best books of 2021. Thought I'd come back and have another chat to you this year. How have you been? I'm good, and you are glutton for punishment. Oh, we are. We are. So let's just jump straight into it without any further ado. What was your best book of 2022? What did you enjoy? The answer to that would be in three parts, but really just the main one would be The Mountain Under the Sea by Ray Naylor. 
So I just want to preface all of this by quoting Grace Jones, who once said, I'm not perfect, but I'm perfect for you. <laughs> and I only say that because Rivi was gone and on about how, well, it wasn't quite perfect or whatever, as if they knew what perfect meant or as, as if any work of art could be perfect. So I just want to stay there at the start. Uh, the Mountain of the Sea is a debut novel by somebody who's written a lot of short stories in a lot of uh, SF magazines. And it's about octopuses and intelligence, including artificial intelligence and what being human means and why it is that we have a term like inhuman when inhuman seems to be a very common human behavior. And it has one of the most unusual first contact stories I have read. And it just points out how little we quite understand what we mean when we talk about aliens. He is a, Ray Naylor has, has lived half his life overseas as American and in places like Russia and Turkmenistan and Kazakhstan and Afghanistan and Kosovo and Vietnam and he speaks seven languages. So I only mention that because it's very interesting what he says about language and communication and translation and the idea that we can necessarily so simply understand any other group of people, never mind species, is is really unfounded. I would say it's pretty hard to understand your neighbour, never mind a, another species. It's certainly hard to understand people down the street. Yes, that is true. <laughs> and people on television, absolutely forget all about it. Just can't, just can't. I don't get it. We need so subtitles. We do. Well, yes, that's, not, that's, not, that's another discussion at some other point about film and television. But uh, yes, I've, I've heard a lot of good things about it. and You'd, you'd recommend it? Obviously, well, you do. In, in case people think it, this is all very... Um, intellectual it has a fantastic central set piece which is something like a a bathtub remote control battle scene with drones righto it's electrifying okay all right well i think this is going to be one of those things that i'm going to have to read to be able to believe you but uh... so so Sounds Gary Wolf reviewed it in Locus and he quoted the editor and critic David Hartwell by describing this book as Neurological Heart SF, which I think is probably not untrue if you add in Philosophical Thriller. So I, I found this a very exciting book because it made me think a lot. Okay. And I'm still thinking about it. I've read it ages ago. Okay. Well, that's good. I mean, I think you can, you can really tell whether a book's made an impact, of course, if it keeps on popping up in your head all the time and you've come across something new in the world, and that brings you back to that novel yet Well, it's again. one of the few books that I'm tempted to read again because I just know I haven't really plumbed it properly. I just know if I read it again, many other things will pop up. Okay. That was the best of yours. Yeah. So I'm very excited. And the other two books are The Absolute Book by Elizabeth Knox and... Also, Babel or the Necessity of Violence by R.F. Kwan. Yes, that's getting a bit of... Um, mm. yeah, that's, that's, that's actually getting a fair bit of attention. That, so that I'll, one. I'll tell you what I think of, of the uh, Babel book. 
Uh, I have to tell you, the subtitle, The Necessity of Violence, is a very pertinent subtitle. Oh, okay. But what I think the book is like in terms of feeling is Harry Potter plus Opium War Revenge Fantasy plus Marxist Revolution Romance. Sounds like an interesting mix. And it's got a very kind of YA tone. <laughs> oh, okay. It's kind of very kind of weird tonally, but very interesting she's 26 I think and by 24 this is R.F. Kuang Rebecca Kuang mm. by 24 she had written a trilogy the Poppy Wars trilogy All right, and yes. she's got two master's degrees from Oxford and she's doing a PhD at Yale right now oh dear <laughs> you sort of wonder where people and she looks like it. she's like 16 or something yeah you wonder where people find the time it's just it's it's practically disheartening sometimes when you listen to yeah, when you yeah, read no, what they've she's, she's a dreadful achiever. Oh, okay. Yes, well, I, um, it's it's certainly on my to to be read list. Uh, my daughter's read it and enjoyed it, and I know David read it and really enjoyed it, and thought that um, uh, it should probably be on some of the ballots this year for some of the awards. And, uh, I'm, I'm I have reservations of the book, but I think it's very interesting. I feel like it is nowhere near as well written as it could be. I think that's partly because she's very young mm. and she's obviously a prodigy of some kind, but I'm not sure that she's such a great writer. Compared to the other book, which you probably haven't read, The Absolute Book, published no. 2019. No. She's a Kiwi writer, Elizabeth yeah. Knox. I first heard about it in 2019 because it was publicized by Dan Coyce, who was the culture editor of Slate in America, mm. who said, why is this book not published in America? And in fact, you couldn't get it in Australia either because oh, okay. it just had vanished into the depths of Kiwi publishing. But what it is, is an epic fantasy involving gods, hell, good and evil, redemption, pain, suffering, the lot. And I'll, show you, I'll, I'll read you a couple of lines from the book, which I picked up random, to give you an idea at the level of which she's writing. So these are just kind of sentences from here and there. Battle, battles among the characters. Battle blushed, and beads of sweat popped out on his forehead, so large and so rapid in the appearance that Jacob expected expected them to be accompanied by some kind of sound effect. Here's another one. Where is the glove? He asked, anxious. She said, you know where. Her eyes were oil bright and oil hot. Another one. Jacob lay back and Ang gently wiped a soft pound down his soft again. Jacob lay back and Ang gently wiped a soft palm down his face, closing his eyes. She just writes with pitch perfect kind of uh, quality. She came out we was it Vintner's luck a long time ago? I can't remember. I've got a feeling that's what it was. Anyway, anyway, yes, I know the name Elizabeth Knox. She's been around for quite some time, um, New Zealand writer. Um, I have to, I'll have to look that one up. It's got an amazing um, setup. So, set in contemporary England, where a crime happens, quite a mysterious crime, which is a stretch for the book, and uh, it's got a crime setup where the detective comes looking for who he suspects caused the thing, the murder to happen who is the main character in the book called Taryn. Her name is Taryn. And at the same time, 
it has a parallel universe which is sort of kind of like purgatory but you also get things like dragons and demons and it's all written in this extraordinary kind of english okay it's sensational anyway look out for it you can see the bookshop well thanks for those thanks for those books so moving on to film what did you like last year Guess my favourite film of the year, Terry. Would it be one of those very funny ones with a really long title, like Everything, Everywhere, All at Once? How did you know? Have you looked at my notes? <laughs> no, no. Uh, it was uh, a pretty interesting film. We saw it together, as I recall. Oh, did we? Because I saw it twice, so the first time wasn't with you. Um, yeah, so I think you liked it a lot, didn't you? I did. I did like it a lot. I thought it was one of the most fun fun pieces of cinema I'd seen in quite a large length of time. It was just fun. I mean, there was just good stuff going on. I mean, so was, you think it was just fun? No, not just fun, but it was fun. It wasn't just fun. It had a lot to say about the science fiction tropes of the one. Uh, and uh, But any film that's got talking rocks in it, come on, with Google eyes, what can you say? Well, this is what I would say. I would say it's a heartwarming family drama of a laundromat owner, Evelyn, husband, Waymond. Waymond, Waymond, yeah, what a great name. (laughs) Their daughter, Joy, and her father, Kung Kung, which is actually not his name. It just means grandfather in Cantonese. Okay. Who is visiting the US from China. And I would also describe it as a mashup of A Christmas Carol, and It's a Wonderful Life, and This Is How You Lose the Time War, and a Jackie Chan Kung Fu caper. Okay, that's a fair mishmash. But that's okay. That's I, not even enough. No, I don't think that it is. I think there's, um, uh, I think there's shout outs to 2001 in it, and uh, there's all the stuff about the multiverse. And it was very, it was interesting that it came out in the same year as the Marvel Doctor Strange. It came out a week before Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. And it was interesting to see how they handled it in different ways. So Doctor Strange, Marvel, Disney, Doctor Strange, cost $200 million and had well over 100 uh, people in their FX team. Mm -hmm. Everything, everywhere, all at once had in their special effects crew five people who worked during the lockdown out of their bedrooms. It just goes to show you, with a little bit of ingenuity <laughs> and talent, you can get away with anything. No, it's good. It really comes across as... Uh, it comes across as um, a lot more than that, though, doesn't it? It really gives you the feeling that uh, there's a lot more... There's been a lot... There was a lot more money spent on it. Well, here, here's the thing. Many years ago, when Helen Garner was writing movie reviews, she said that one of the first things a movie has to do is move. So this was kind of like one of her criticisms of the kind of tedious, slow motion quality of many Australian movies at the time. Right. They 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 were trying to be lyrical, which is to say they didn't, didn't have enough story in them. So they were far too static. So yeah. with both Everywhere, every Everything All at Once and Doctor Strange, you could say that they were certainly moving movies. They were moving all the time. But it seemed to me... I have not seen Doctor Strange 2, and I'm unlikely to, but I have read some reviews of it. And it seems to me like a lot of the multiverses 
in Doctor Strange were not really related to the core mission of the story, whereas the multiverses in everything everywhere all at once were actually telling us about why this particular story about Evelyn that Lorna met on had to exist mm. and why all these things could only could she could only be who she was because of all these other things that didn't happen very complicated but yes two rocks that made me made you laugh made you cry you yes couldn't, you couldn't be that really. oh, fantastic there's just so many so many interesting little bits and pieces in that film that i thought were just stunningly good um wasn't my favorite of last year uh, but uh, it was up there it was up there what was your favorite drive my car Ah, yes. That which, was which, excellent. Which, again, we saw together. I love that. That was. That was fantastic. But uh, most fun I had um, in a cinema last year was Everything Everywhere All at Once. And I know, I know I've had some people whose opinion I trust who've been to see it and say they thought it was atrocious. They just couldn't get it. But the whole point about it is you've got to suspend your level of disbelief and you've got to go with... I just want this thing to wash over me and then I'll get it as it goes along. And you do. But and you, you slowly to start to figure it out. disbelief just watching TV every night anyway. What's the big deal? You've got to do that when you're watching the news. Otherwise, exactly. otherwise you go crazy. So, uh, but uh, no, I thought, I thought it was wonderful. I really enjoyed it. So I, I'm going to ask you a trick question now. Oh, okay. How many movie adaptations do you think there are of Pinocchio? Oh... Direct or or based movies on movies called Pinocchio. Movies called Pinocchio. All right. Well, I'd, I know this is obviously a trick question, so the number is probably going to be very high. But I'd say what eight. Twenty-four. Okay. Is that how many of, were made in twenty twenty-two? Two or three? Three. Three. Wow. Why? So I don't know why, but I can tell you that one of the best Pinocchios I have seen, and I haven't seen 24, is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, which you can all watch on Netflix. Yep. It is for a tale about mortality and morality outrageously entertaining. Mm. And the Pinocchio is fantastic, anarchic, unruly, provocative, difficult creature like a young puppy dog yep here's an example he goes into the church after having made a, a bit of trouble in the town he says he points to the the crucifix and he says he's made of wood too why does everybody like him and not me good line really good <laughs> line i like that so is it is it a stop motion animation live action it is stop motion so it may be one of the first, ver in fact, I think it is, the first version of Pinocchio in which the puppet is played by a puppet. How's that for method acting? Okay. When you talk about wooden performance, this is it. <laughs> okay. All right. I think we move on from the tortured splintered puns there. I, I just have to add, though, there, there are three great, uh, infusions in the movie that come from Del Toro. So that's a Catholic church, which represents a religious side. Mm. The politics is represent, represented by fascist Italy. Right. And then there's the corporate greed side represented by the circus. And he nails all of them. Okay. 
Mm. Certainly worth saying that. Okay, anything well, else? It depends on whether if you disdain uh, animated features as for children or no, not. No, of course not. Because some people regard them the same way as some people regard science fiction. Not really kosher. Not for adults. No, no. It's, it's, the, it's the quality of the film making that you're looking for. The medium in which it's made is interesting and informative, but should not be restrictive. Oh, middle miss, why so serious? Well, yeah, exactly. Why so serious? <laughs> so, anything else from last year? That's it. Those two were the standouts. Thanks very much. It's a good couple of uh, good couple of films there. So, moving to the last section, television. How did you go with television last year? What was what was your favourite piece of TV you saw last year? I want to mention three plus one. Three plus one. Yeah, you can mention so, as many as you like. I finally started watching only twelve years late Friday Night Lights. Have you heard of this? I have heard of this. I has never really appealed. Uh, I'm not sure why. I know a lot of people say things no about it. But there's no reason why it would appeal. For instance, it's set in a small town, fictitious town of Dillon in Texas, mm -hmm. about the gridiron local school team called the Panthers. Why on earth would anyone living in Melbourne care? No, it sounds... No reason whatsoever. It sounds to me like a, a high school a rom -com. stupid idiotic dump of an idea. Yeah. As it turns out, it's an incredible portrait of America. Okay. And uh, I care even less about gridiron football than I do for cricket. And in fact, it's not about gridiron at all. It's just about lives. And it is so sharply written. Okay. And so beautifully performed. And I look forward to every episode with trepidation and anticipation. How many seasons are there? 2006 to 2011, so maybe five, five, or six, five or six. Five or six, okay. How many, how many episodes per season? 10, 12? 22 or four. What? Old fashioned. Old fashioned, old yeah, school. Yeah, yeah. Wow. What, Incredible. Um, and how long, what, 45 minutes or an hour? Or? Yep. Wow, that's a fair commitment. It's amazing. Right. But, you know, it's like watching The Wire. Okay. You, you just kind of like want to gobble it up. Oh, you just basically sort of immerse yourself in it. Yeah. Well, you can. We we have, because there's so many episodes, we have at different points watched one a night for like a week. It's yeah. It's it's like a, a serial novel. Well, that's what a lot of them are. Uh, my wife and I do the same thing. We watch... Um, we watch one hour a night of something, and then if it's looking like it's getting near the end, especially when you get the last couple in the season and you want to know how it finishes, you'll binge a couple of episodes. I can't do more than two, maybe three in a night. I know some people do seven or eight, but I just can't do that. They just drive me out the wall. Uh, but especially the last couple all flowing together. But uh, it, it is, it's, it's an interesting flow, isn't it, where you stay just with one story, over a period of a week or ten days, and you just can you just can be consumed by it. And obviously, this is one that has yeah. impacted you. It's very McLuhan, you know. Okay. This is a hot medium. Right. Okay. All you have to do is sit there and let it wash over you. And that's it. Yeah, that's it. Anything else? Yes, I finally uh, also got around to watching Ted Lasso. 
Okay. So Friday Night Lights is a soap about hope. Then Ted Lasso is like a comedy about self-belief. Right. But what I really admire about it is that the writing is, oh my goodness, is so good. The control of tone and trajectory is so fantastic. And also, I really love all the swearing in British accents. Swearing British accents is the best. <laughs> you think they swear better than anybody else? It just sounds... It just sounds good coming from a language that we have been acculturated on this part of the world to think of as being uh, the correct, appropriate kind of sound, you know. Basically the old BBC thing. But yep. still, it's kind of like if you have to speak like anyone, you speak like a British person. Right. But then they go, XXY. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sounds good. Yes, and again, that's another one that a lot of people have said a lot of good things about. Mm. Anything else? There are two Elena Ferrante adaptations on TV now. Mm -hmm. You can watch My Brilliant Friend on SBS, and you can watch The Lying Life of, of Adults on, I think, Netflix, probably. Okay. And they're in Italian, and they're shot in Naples, both of them. Mm -hmm. And it's just fantastic watching these lives, these non-Anglo lives, one historical and one sort of contemporary uh, in this kind of lush Italian kind of space. Do you prefer to watch uh, foreign language film and television in the original language with subtitles or dubbed? Always. Right. Did, you, did, did you see the, the movie Prey last year? Which yes. Which is one of the... Yeah, I saw it. Thing? Yeah, yeah. What was the series as part of? Uh, the Predator series, yeah. The Predator series. Yeah. So Excellent film. what I did, or, or because I heard somebody mention this on, on some podcast, is I watched the thing in commentary right. with English yep. subtitles. Yep. And then I watched a bit of it in English, and it is so much better in commentary. Oh, okay. Because it actually made it alien. Oh, okay. It made it not your place. Yeah, that's fair enough. I can understand yeah. how you get So if you that. watch these Comanche Braves yeah. and Warriors and whatever, wandering around talking like suburban American California kids, it does not work for me. Okay. I was quite impressed with that film because... I thought it's great. I went in, into it thinking, well, you know, I like the, I like the Predator series. I like, I, like, I like the first one. I like, I like the second one not so much, but some of the others I, quite, I really quite liked. And I'd heard about this one and I thought, well, I'll, I'll watch it, but I didn't have a lot of high hopes for it. I thought I'd just watch, you know, like 20 minutes, half an hour. Just watched it all the way straight through. Couldn't stop watching it because it just worked in terms of uh, the actor they had played in the lead role and a couple of the other uh, supporting roles. And um, the Predator was menacing. Uh, and well, it was just a very fresh was, context, it wasn't was, it? It was that, just good. That historical, the, the uh, idea that yeah, the idea that the predators dropped on Earth to do its sort of almost initiation, where it has to sort of go out and um, and kill uh, the native intelligent wildlife, namely humans in this instance, um, and has uh, landed somewhere uh, up on the Great Plains uh, between the U.S. and Canada back in what the early seventeen hundreds or something, and it was uh, excellent. I um I was very impressed with it, and mm. uh, I, I I would recommend that one for sure. Yep. 
watch all foreign language movies in the foreign language. Yeah, okay, it's a good point. It's a good point. Plus, then, you know, if you are like David Gregg and you need subtitles in your movies, no problem. Well, I'm watching, I'm watching most things with subtitles now because I find even if it's in English, I'm using putting the subtitles on because sometimes the sound is just so bloody muddy. I, I should just give terrible. you a link to put on your landing page which explains why we do need subtitles nowadays because of the way they film things. Yeah. And it is partly a budget concern and the way they used to film things in the past, which are really films around on TV and, and even TV back then, they can't do anymore because of budget constraints. Uh -huh, okay. So if you have subtitles, it's a good thing because you actually can't hear some of this stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's and they will not go back to re... Overdub it. To re... Uh, to re... Uh, record the sound because of money. Okay. All right. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. Anything else? So the Finish last up? thing I want to mention is something from this year. Have you been watching The Last of Us? Yes, I have. Bloody hell, is it good or what? It is very, very good. I'm only... Um, I'm only three... What, how many episodes are we... When we get now, I think up to about six. I'm, I'm two behind. So you've watched episode three? Episode three, yes, I've watched that Why one. did you think of episode three? Oh, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, was very, very well handled. It was a movie, wasn't it? It was. It was. It could have been a movie about those two guys. I think it was a movie. Well, it was quite. The episode seemed to be quite long. Yeah, I think that was like an hour, an hour and a half. Hour or something. Well, okay, yeah, and it was. Uh, uh, it was good, and I, I, I was talking to my son about it, and he said that he enjoyed it as well. And I said that I, I've heard that a lot of the, um, uh, the uh, video gamers, the the guys in their cellars, have been or basements, have been not very happy with it, and uh, uh, because of course it's about spends a lot of the main characters in that episode are too. Two gay couple. It was a gay couple, male couple, and so what? So it, it, it's, it's, it's it's true. It's just an excellent no, piece no. of work. It, it's a true reaction. What what your son said because on Metacritic they have the critics' reviews rating and they have the users' rating. Yeah, what do you throw here? Yeah. And the users' rating is way down, and you you don't have to think very hard why it's that, yeah. that way. Well, I've, I've I've just been enjoying it anyway. Um, uh, I tried to explain it to my wife, and she said, "Oh, it's just another zombie movie, then, isn't it?" And I said, "No, no, it that. actually isn't. It's better than that." But but I think this is a very uh, a very crucial nexus. It's not a zombie apocalypse. It's a post-mushroom zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Yes. And the important bit is actually the post bit because this is not about the apocalypse at the moment happens. It's about how do you live in a world where you have lost everything. Yeah. And this is where, this is where Station Eleven and Star Trek Voyager come in. Because this is the line that Station Eleven uses: survival is insufficient. So, if you're alive, even in the world that's been destroyed, is actually just being alive enough? And part of the reason for this series is to say, well, if it's not, what do you do? And Episode Three is an incredible exposition of how you deal with something like this if you're lucky enough. I, I would agree with it. I um, 
I can see it becoming um, or ending up as one of my favourites for the year so far. I've been impressed with it. I've been sort of, I've been very busy with other things and I haven't had time to sit down and watch it, but I'm looking forward to catching up. Uh, and it's and the episodes are dropping uh, one a week. Episode five will kill you. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, I better be careful then. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, thanks very much for those. That's been uh, fantastic. Um, good, uh, a good range of stuff. Thank you very much. And uh, hopefully we'll talk again next year. It's always my pleasure, Middle Miss, to pass, pass on my pleasure to your people. <laughs> thanks very much. All right, I think that's about it for this particular episode, David. Um, I think we've got uh, done quite enough. I think uh, uh, hopefully people um, have stayed with us all the way right through or are listening to it in big chunks because uh, that's probably about the best way to uh, to do something of, of this length. But anyway, it's been good. Uh, we've caught up with a few books that we've been reading lately and there's been um, hopefully there's some uh, a good range of material there for people to uh, have a think about and go out and have a look for. All right, so we'll be back in uh, two or three weeks uh, with another episode. At this time, we'll be dealing with crime fiction. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to read a couple of crime books between uh, now and then. Uh, I've read, I've read, I've read a couple. Bit, so. I've, I, I already have got a couple. Right, okay. I need to well, read a couple good. more. All right, well, I've, got, uh, I've been reading quite a, quite a bit of crime fiction lately, so uh, I'll have a fair bit to talk about. All right, David, All right. we'll see you then. We'll see you then. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.